Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This past Sunday was the first sermon in our Advent series, The Wait and the Hope, so we had plenty of questions to get through during the Ask Me Anything time at the end of the service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our Music and Worship Arts Director, are going to answer the questions we didn't get to in this episode. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. If you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. This is Nicole Kyle. I am on staff at High Point Church. I'm here with Nick Gibson. He is our lead pastor. I'm uh, the worship director, and we're going to go through the rest of the AMA questions from this morning. Great. So, there are two questions that are follow-ups from the sermon, so I'm just going to jump right in with those two, and then we'll cover a handful that are unrelated. Sounds good? Yes. All right. So the first question says, oh, well, actually, before we do that, do you want to give a brief um review of your sermon from this morning no yeah um so i i just basically said so we're doing a series called the weight and the hope it's on the fact that advent is a time where we both recognize the darkness of the waiting that people experienced before christ as people looked forward to something but they also suffered under something right so advent has both this sense of like waiting in a time of darkness and also waiting for this event of Christ's coming in anticipation. So one of the things I said this morning was that that is part of the paradox of waiting for God, so to speak, or the, or two different lines of it. One is that we are suffering under the way of the curse. And one of the things that alleviates that is our anticipation of future glory, Christ's mm-hmm. second advent. Mm-hmm. And that um, the looking forward to Christ's glory in the second advent is a counterweight to the weight of the curse we currently live under, but only if it's operational in that we are actually actively eagerly awaiting and anticipating the hope of Christ's return and the glory that attends that. And that has to be active, not just something that we like claim as part of our doctrine, but it's something that our hearts cherish Mm -hmm. regularly. Right. Right. You talked about how it's both, a noun and a verb mm-hmm. have to be both of them. So this person is asking about that part of your sermon. So um, thank you for giving this, or the, the context and the summary. So this person says, you offer additional practical ways to make hope operational and or set ourselves up for success in this area. Yeah. So there are a number of things that may seem obvious, but um, are not. For some people. Mm -hmm. So one is to attend worship and to worship wholeheartedly with the fullness of your concentration Mm -hmm. and the full extent of your emotions during worship with other people. Um, That is a ritual and a practice that helps us point ourselves to God, his truths, and so on. Um, Second is um, what what, uh, historical Christians called private worship, but what modern people normally call personal devotions. Okay. Um, in higher church tradition, sometimes they use a prayer book and a liter- in a in a lectionary. In circles like ours, we tend to encourage people to read the Bible and pray or journal that sort of thing. Okay. But taking time uh, constantly for what I like to call I think that I think the title devotionals is good. Right? I, I don't like quiet time. Quiet time is fine. Um, or hanging out with God or whatever. But the reason I like devotional is the purpose of the moment is to build devotion. 
Mm-hmm. That's the whole purpose of it. It's to increase your passion and love for God. Mm-hmm. So um, just like you wouldn't, if you were depressed, you wouldn't take out love letters your husband wrote you and analyze them for English syntax. <laughs> you would read them to remember what he said and how he cares. Yeah. Right. And similarly, when you go to the Bible in your devotions, it's really not the time to like try to analytically break everything down. Yeah. Um, but it's to read what God has to say about his care for us, about his promises, mm-hmm. about the truths that he's revealed that can guide and, and shape our lives. All the things that we could be thankful to God for and recognize his, his good providence and his loving care. And, and connect ourselves emotionally to that as well as mentally. And I think any, any practice does that is going to be helpful. So then beyond those two things, I, I think um, the third, it would be fellowship would probably be the next straightforward biblical thing where you are in what the older Christians used to call holy conversation, where you let you talk with other people about how great God is and how great it's going to be to be with him and all those things in, in you. And you like pass that back and forth socially between each other. Yeah. And in doing so, it like, it, it does something for you emotionally. It, it, it's helpful. Um, beyond that, I think it has something to do with your personality, and your temperament. Some yeah. people do great with journaling. Some people really don't. Some people really are ministered to by just listening to Christian music that exalts God's future glory. Other people, yeah. it doesn't really do that much for them. So in, in some sense, after some of these basic biblical disciplines, I would say it, it, then it gets more relative to your temperament and what tends to help you. But in every case, I think it's something specific or some specific set of things done with discipline repetitively. Yeah. I mean, that's what it always is for human beings for to change is or to remember something consistently or to have our life built around something. It's a ritual, something we do that's repetitive that we do with discipline over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think especially in the midst of COVID, some of these, well, not all of them, like personal devotions, those you can have on your own easily, whether we're in the midst of COVID or not. Some of the other ones I think feel a little bit more difficult, but I think that I just want to share a quick anecdote about it. Um, we recently, I would, a friend was telling me about an opportunity she had to get to worship in person with other Christians for the first time in months. And she was mm-hmm. saying how it's one of the the deep things that she is thankful for from this past year, because watching other believers worship in the midst of things that she knew were hard in their lives gave her hope and gave her a desire to worship God more too. And so you, you mentioned that when you first talked about attending worship, you said doing it with other believers. I think that there's something that happens when we get to participate with other people doing this corporate thing together. And so I think that that's a really important thing right now for people who might not be feeling hopeful, but who are trying to find practical ways is to be creative in how to find ways to worship with other believers, even if mm-hmm. it's one or two other believers, because it can mm-hmm. be really, um, it can really lift our hearts and our spirits to get to do it with other believers and other Christians, especially when we know their stories. So mm-hmm. I just want to, yeah, I agree. That. Yeah. Great. Okay. So the next person, um, somebody, or it it actually wasn't a question that came in, but after you preached and when we started AMA, you talked a little bit about, um, what scripture does and doesn't tell us about heaven. And this person is writing in response to that. They said, I am eager for the new earth and the mansion Jesus prepared for me. I missed your distinction of what scripture does and doesn't tell us of the kingdom of God. Could you repeat? Yeah. So the point I made was really one about proportion rather than about what 
the Bible does or doesn't say. So one, one of the things I said about the Bible is that in its discussion of glory or the, that future, those future promises that God has given, there's a, a lot of them are about the quality of that, of that life and its moral character and things other than just what I called in the sermon, the architecture of heaven, like, will there be gold streets and Will there be archways and mansions and so on, right? So, for for example, in um, John fourteen, when Jesus says um, that he goes to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, there are many. So, so the old the uh, King James version, I think, was many mansions. Mm-hmm. Most modern translations translates that many rooms, mm-hmm. right? And um, and and Jesus says, does say, in my Father's house there are many, whatever this is, right? The idea that in a house there are many mansions is a little bit of a weird metaphor. Um, and so sometimes like we get, we kind of get caught up in what we think we're being told about heaven mm-hmm. and it, it, that may not be exactly right. For example, I don't know that we're getting mansions in heaven. We might have rooms in God's house, right? So who, I don't know, right? But that passage doesn't clearly teach we get mansions, right? I think also the, some of the descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation, I think might be literal, but they also could be apocalyptic um, imagery that's meant to be taken in a certain kind of metaphor of uh, that these images are examples of something God is going to do rather than the literal thing itself. Okay. So there, I think there's some things relative to even the vision that John sees of the city of God that might not be exactly literal. It's instead of, and so I'm not saying that, like, I think there is going to be a new earth and I think that new earth is going to be beautiful. And I think that it'll be the creation renewed, which will be something like what we imagine, I, I suppose. Right. And there will be housing with God, right. We'll live with him and there's going to be a city of God in some way. I think that that's the case. I think that's probably literally true in some way, but what, what scripture teaches a lot is like, we will be freed from sin and we will actually not just be counted righteous in Christ, but we will have been made righteous in God's glorification of us. And that that is an incredible future right that we will rise from the dead that we like all these all these other things that our citizenship is in heaven that will be in heaven will really belong there Mm -hmm. right whether or not we belong feel like we really belong anywhere now right we will belong there yeah and you know all these kinds of things that we will really be his sons and daughters that we will look like him and really be in his image and people you know if people looked at us they would think that we're his kids because we resemble him not just in our resurrected bodies but like in our character and our godliness and our holiness and those sorts of things so I think the, so the point I'm trying to make is, is that the glories are not just what we know about heaven's architecture or, or like buildings or whatever, what streets are made out of, but a much wider picture of the curse being broken and turned back and everything that could be said negatively about the curse can be said to be positively undone Mm -hmm. in glory. Yeah. And glory is is even broader than heaven. Yeah. And so I think we want people to connect with glory and all of its meanings in every facet, which includes whatever the Bible tells us about heaven. Right. Like the new heavens and the new earth and that that's going to be fantastic, but also everything else. And I don't want Christians to have too narrow a category of the completeness of all that they can appeal to as this counterweight to the curse. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. I think, I, um, because for some people, the aesthetic beauty is going to be part of that. But for other people, it's yes. not. And so, yeah. 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 I, now, but I, I think then we'll all appreciate it. Right. But I think now some people look forward to it more than others. Right. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, there was a, a guy in the service today who was like, you know, my wife is a very artistic person and a very like, like architectural and like loves interior design and likes making things beautiful. And so, I mean, she's really looking forward to all that. And, right. and I am too. Yeah. I, like, 
that's right. But yeah. I just want people to have, I don't want people to think, oh, when I think of glory, I should think of that the streets are made of gold or that I'm going to get a mansion Yeah, it goes rather than like, you'll that. finally be free from sin. Right. And mm-hmm. relationships that are so difficult now will be, will be easy. They'll be restored and they'll be full. Yeah. You know, and, and all these other things, right? Yeah. Great. Okay, we're going to take a, a hard left turn here from talking about <laughs> the glories of eternity. So the next question says, does the United States have a problem with what is commonly called systemic racism? Yeah. Um, so I think that any society that has a strong majority um, and that is populated by other non-majority groups I, I think it's very difficult for societies like that not to develop something like what people call systemic racism. Um, any any culture that has a like a fairly durable upper class or people who financially have a lot of the wealth in that society, mm-hmm. um, I think that there's there the nature of humanity tells us that something like what people call systemic racism will have some effect. Now, the, the problem is, is that like how much? It could be like a completely sure. inconsequential effect or it could be, it could control everything in the society, right? That's the sure. question. Sure. Um, if most of the times, historically, if we look at other societies that have strong, enduring, and durable ruling classes or majority classes or whatever, usually there is massive complaint in the historical literature of the minority peoples that they weren't treated fairly, systemically. Mm-hmm. To think that that's not true in America, I think is just hard for me to think, hard for me to believe. So yet at the same time, when I look at um, s- proposed evidences of systemic racism, especially in the present, like right now, um, it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult to show strong causal evidence that systemic racism exists. Most of the ones that I've seen used publicly when I have dug into them and tried to figure out what those numbers mean and what those studies say and blah, blah, blah. Because what I want to say is if I'm going to affirm that such a thing as systemic racism exists and somebody asks me for evidence of it, which I think is perfectly fine for people to ask for, I want to have a number of evidences. I still don't have one. Um, I've probably studied 25 or 30 different examples, um, people who who hold the view that systemic racism is a big problem. Mm-hmm. And usually what's quoted is... Um, is a number that describes a reality, but doesn't tell us the causal nature of that reality, right? So for example, somebody might say, well, look at the percentage of arrests in Dane County that are young black men. It's like, I don't know if it's like 40%, something like that. And they're like six, like 3% of the county, right? And so like, look at that disparity. How could that be, right? But there's there are no two groups of, of any human being that if you measured them relative to anything that you'd get equal outcomes. Yeah. Right. So if, if you if you measured like the incomes of Ethiopian Americans and Nigerian Americans, it's not equal. Right. <laughs> there's there's no group that's equal. And so if you're going to chalk it up to systemic racism alone and not to behavioral differences or effects of poverty or effects of literacy or effects of schooling or all these other things. Right. Um, you say it's systemic racism. That's it. It gets really iffy and questionable. So I think. My theology tells me and my understanding of human beings, my anthropology tells me and my experience of what human beings are generally like tells me that something like a systemic racism must exist in a place like America. Evidentially, 
I have a really hard time proving it. Yeah. Let me ask you Even though the disparities are very yeah. suspect, right? Let me give you one quick story about this. I don't know if I think I've shared on this podcast before. I don't, I'm not sure. So some years ago, um, there's a family in our church called the Flatmeyers. Their daughter was playing um, for like a regional championship game. She played for, for Middleton and we were playing against Verona. And we were, I think we we're at a neutral site. And in the first half, um, the refs called something like, I don't know, 15 or 16 team fouls against Middleton and like three against Verona. And in a game that close, that's really, really a consequential difference. And it just felt like the refs had picked favorites. Like it did not feel like a evenly ref game. And as somebody who's played literally 34 years of basketball at this, no more than that, 36 years of basketball at this point in my life. Like I know the game of basketball very well. And I know it's a foul and what isn't. And I know if refs are calling things fairly or not, and it did not appear that way to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, by the end of the game, they had kind of even out the fouls called, but it was too late. Mm -hmm. Verona had already been up by 20, right? And I remember sitting there, I think I, I turned to Andy, I said, I wonder if this is what it feels like um, if you're like African-American and you believe in systemic racism. Because like as a, as a person, I was cheering for Middleton that night yeah. and people could tell me the refs were being fair. And all the Verona fans were like, no, this is totally fair. Yeah. And I was like, that's bullcrap. Mm -hmm. This isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so could I prove, can I prove it? I mean, I feel like if we had video of all the different fouls and I show, like right. I, I could prove it, but I can't. Right. You know? Um, but I know like in my bones, I feel like I know my bones, it wasn't fair. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's how a lot of my African American friends feel like, 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 yeah, it's hard to show. It's hard to prove that the, this is the cause. This is the, the causal factor, the causal factor yeah. is systemic racism, whereas than anything else you could um, appropriated to. And some of these things overlap. Like if schooling isn't yeah. going well for young black boys, well, a lot of times folks will be like, well, that, that is success systemic racism. And the answer is, is it, is it, or is it that there's two educational models? One in inner city kids require a different educational model than not like non kids that have two parent homes that grow up with certain advantages. And you just teach those kids in very different ways. And when schools are set up to teach one group of kids, the other kids don't do well. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and you can't, and you have to choose and somebody's going to lose. Yeah. And if the majority, if the majority culture wants it taught in way A, let's say, mm -hmm. and uh, the minority culture wants school taught in way B, let's say, right. Either you do the will of the minority, right. In teaching way B so that kids that need way A don't thrive as much as they would have otherwise. Right. But kids Right. Or vice versa. Like you can't really, it can't be one. Of, it's not one or the other. Right. Um, and so, so I, so I, th I think that I don't find systemic racism to be very helpful. Claims of being very helpful unless it can be substantiated and, and then we can actually do something about it that people can agree moves us towards fairness. So when somebody asks this question, does the United States have a problem with, with what's called systemic racism? I mean, theologically, I want to say racism is endemic to the heart of human beings because we are in-group, out-group creatures mm -hmm. by nature. And so I think we should always be suspecting it and always be naturally and emotionally working against it. But evidentially, I really struggle with it, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and um, I'm still I'm still trying to figure out how to get my arms around something that feels like I'm trying to grab a ghost. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. And I, and I know African-American and Latino friends that feel the same way. Like they're trying to find the smoking right. gun and they want to be able to show it to their white or whatever, whoever friends right. and say, look, don't you stare. There it is. Like it literally is right there. Well, um, I think uh, that part yeah. of it is so complicated. I mean, this was, 
this past year, it was Sanctity of Life Sunday. And this was in February, right before COVID. And we also were recognizing MLK. And you had this whole map up on the screen of all the ways that issues are interconnected. Like whether it's civil rights issues or if we're talking about abortion or if we're talking about systemic racism, like you just had all these different ways. It was this web of ways that everything impacts one another and that it's never just a, I forget the phrase that you used, um, but it's, it's, it's never the, the single issue that can be the cause causing factor for everything that they're all intertwined and working with one another. And that I think is also part of what is difficult for everybody in the conversation about systemic racism, which you, you yeah. missed in your answer. Yeah. One of the, one of the, so like, you know, there's the critical race theory, like humanities disciplines. <laughs> and those folks always get frustrated with economists because, you know, economists are, are trying to do science and they're trying to like figure out how you can really isolate variables and measure stuff. And one of the things that um, I've heard a number of economists say is people who are thinking politically always want a one thingism. Yeah. They want to be able to say thing A is the issue. Like that's it. And that's the problem. And so people want to say it's it's racism or it's economic opportunity or it's fatherlessness or it's and everybody wants to live in a world that simple, right? Republicans want to say, look, the problem with black community is fatherlessness. And if we just get some fathers, it'd be fine, right? And people in the in the black community want to say it's systemic racism. If we could just get rid of systemic racism, we'd have plenty of fathers and everything would be fine, right? And neither of those are true. Yeah. Like, and, and they're both true. Right. They're, they're both true. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, and the, like all these problems are like connected. All, yeah. So, and, and so when people are like, oh, it's this, I always go, no, it's not like the world just isn't that simple. Yeah. And if you want to live in a world that's simple, then go watch cable news and sit in your living room and yell at it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you're not going to help the world. You're not going to get anybody anywhere. You're not going to solve any problems and you're probably going to vote for the wrong people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, it's gonna be bad. and things are going to be worse in 20 years. Yeah, because of that attitude. It's the same thing that we're dealing with when people want to talk about what's the best way to fix the to, to move forward with COVID. Like, are we going to talk about it from yeah. the perspective of economy? Are we going to talk about it from the perspective of um, of sheer number of deaths? Like even within the medical right. field, are we going to talk with family practice doctors or are we going to talk with um, infectious disease specialists? Like, I mean, it all is dependent on... And what are the, what are the priorities you're making the decision on? And yeah, right. What is an acceptable cost and what isn't and all of those sorts of things, right? Um, okay, let's move on from that question. This person writes in, a, in one of the Not Just Politics podcast episodes, a guest mentioned our blind faith in Jesus. And you didn't counter that phrasing. Could you speak, could you please speak to your perspective on that? Um, and a follow-up to that is, does the Bible anywhere teach us to blindly believe? So first of all, I just want to say that I like that this person thinks that I should correct everyone for everything they say wrong in my presence. Like I, I first, people have been trying to get me not to do that, both in my family and in my workplace. And I just, I like that this person feels <laughs> like I can do that. Um, so I don't remember this. Um, it probably was just, I just didn't feel like I could just jump in and attack that. Uh-huh. Um, in a couple of these podcasts, I've had guests that haven't been guests before and I don't, didn't want to make them feel inordinately uncomfortable. And since that wasn't their topic, I didn't want to like, you know, kind of micromanage their phrasing. Um, I know I, I do, I do believe faith is always based on something. Uh-huh. I don't think it's utterly blind. Um, but I do agree with, with like Soren Kierkegaard that there is a leap involved. Like you have to, through volition, fill the gap between what we can know and what we can't know. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that for almost all human knowledge, there's that gap. So I think when people say that religious faith is different than all other belief because it's a leap of faith, I think that's wrong. And so I agree with the questioner's assumption. I think that that is wrong. Yeah. Great. All right. Uh, Next question. Can you, um, okay, you may need to give a little context of the illustration that you did in your sermon today for this question. Can you discuss how Christians should balance the weight of COVID with the hope of a vaccine that's coming out, but not for several months? Yeah, so part of it is I wouldn't, I wouldn't balance it with the hope of a vaccine. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think it's okay to anticipate a vaccine as a secondary thing. So let me let me do the quick first and secondary things. C.S. Lewis, I haven't done this in probably years. So C.S. Lewis used to say that like there was an ultimate thing and then there are secondary things, right? Secondary things are um, are they're dependent on other things for their meaning. And, the, and if you try to make them the be all end all of the universe, you'll destroy them. Right. Yeah. So for example, if you like, if you have kids because you want them to fulfill you, you'll ruin your children and parenting will not fulfill you and yeah. your kids will hate you. Right. If you have kids, cause you believe that God, who is the ultimate thing wants you to pass on life and you give the gift of life to another human being who becomes your child and graciously you nurture that gift of life. As a secondary thing, you will tend to find parenting fulfilling, mm-hmm. right? But if you do it because you want fulfilling to be the pri- fulfillment to be the primary thing, you won't be fulfilled and you'll destroy everything, mm-hmm. right? So giving life because God has called you to give the gift of life is the primary thing. Mm-hmm. Being fulfilled or seeking fulfillment is the secondary thing, right? So something like being free of a disease by getting a vaccine is a secondary thing. It's not the ultimate meaning of your life. It's not what gives you real freedom or real hope in the face of death or, or it orders your understanding of your health or anything like that. Right. It's just a thing and it'll be helpful. Right. Cause if you get it, maybe you won't get COVID. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would do is I would take all of the losses of freedom and maybe financial loss and, and, um, fear of losing your health and those kinds of things that are the weight of the curse and recognize that all of those things will be destroying by glory, right? That there will be, there's a time where there will be no disease where you will be maximally free in Christ and um, you won't have a body that gets sick mm-hmm. and that that day is coming mm-hmm. and the day of the curse where these things are reality cannot hold. And additionally, in the providential grace of God, he may help us get a vaccine. Right. So I would say the counterweight is not the vaccine. Mm -hmm. The vaccine is um, with the whipped cream on top. (laughs) Uh You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So partly because the vaccine isn't a promise. I I would say when you counterweight what is certain about the curse, you want to counterweight with something that is certain in the revealed will of God, that which is promised or accomplished. And then that which you don't know for sure is grace. Yeah. It's additional. I've got a couple more questions. This next one says, under the curse, if we continue in sin or return to sin, can we expect the curses articulated in Deuteronomy 28 to come upon us? I don't think all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... Uh, some of those have to are, are promises of a curse that a people will receive corporately and plurally. Um, you could argue that the church is that, but the church is not that all in one place, all at one time, all under one government or any of, of those sorts of things. So I, I think there are ways in which some of those are situated in the Old Testament. And they only relate to the people of God in the Old right. Testament. However, um, there are similar curses like in um, 
in the book of Hebrews in chapter six, it says that if we come to what I think is saving faith or something very like it, mm-hmm. and we walk away, we be, we crucify the son of God all over again. We are like um, ground that only ever grows thistles and thorns and never any fruit. And it deserves mm-hmm. to be twice burned. Yeah. So th- there is like a, a strong yeah. idea that if, um, if we return to subject ourselves to the curse and we, we put our faith in it rather than in Christ, then, then there, there is actually a worse curse that we can fall into that is not the curse, but is the curse of judgment, not just the general curse of creation being subjected to futility. Like it says in Romans eight. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Here's our last question. This person writes, as Christians, we care about what God cares about, right? Doesn't it take a courage only God can give and help us with? I do think that to to care about all that God cares about and to live maximally for what God cares about, that it does require his supernatural aid. Yes, I do. I do believe that. And I do believe it is it is. Um, a supernaturally empowered courage. But I, I also think that it feels natural to the people who have it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it, I don't think it like, you know, I imagine when I was a kid, when I, when I heard the story of Samson being told that like the spirit of God came upon him and he picked up a donkey's job and he killed a thousand men with it. Like I, I, that I was like, that probably felt amazing. Yeah. Like he probably felt like, yeah. like Superman, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. It, like, you know what I mean? Like you could feel that in your bones, right? Uh-huh. I don't think that's what it feels like Yeah. when people are empowered with God's courage supernaturally. I think it still feels natural. I think yeah. that as the Roman Catholics say that grace perfects nature, uh-huh. that like God's grace is working in us as human beings. Uh-huh. And it feels like something natural to us, right. but it is God's supernatural graciousness, his working in our nature to cause us to will and to desire what he is leading us to for him to work out um, his, his goals for us in us. Right. Right. So I do think that the courage is supernatural. Um, I, but I, but I, and I do think it has to come only with God's help, but I don't think it feels like that. I think it feels natural even though it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you everyone who um, sent in these questions. Thanks, Nick, for taking time to answer them. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a little bit shorter today, but we talked a lot in the service. Yeah. yeah. Great. All right, we'll see you guys next week. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.